Hear now the word of God from the book of Leviticus. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire, it is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting and Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then, from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his head on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as is offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Would you uh, remain standing as we just dedicate this to the Lord? Heavenly Father, it is, um, we confess that hearing these ancient words, uh, we're not really sure what to do with them that our hearts are more inclined to incredulity uh, than trust. And I pray that by your spirit, you would open up the eyes of our hearts that we would uh, see and hear and be changed. Give us eyes to see your son, our savior, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. That was quite a text, right? All right. Like, what's he going to say? Uh, so last Sunday, we started a new sermon series, and it's called Surprised by Christ, a study in the writings of Moses. And so today, we're going to jump right in to Leviticus. 
And Leviticus, everyone, is a book of rules and rituals. And Moses is convinced that this is what our soul needs, apparently. And the problem is that our culture has a severe allergy to those two words, right? Rules, rituals. Like seriously, trying to tell people that they need rules and rituals and they're likely to like pull out an EpiPen and just stick it in their back end so that their throat doesn't swell up, right? Uh, so I have an impossible task. Um, but listen here, I, am, I want you to know that Leviticus paints a picture that is so beautiful and so necessary that your heart cannot experience lasting peace without it. Your brain can't even understand your own Savior, Jesus, without it. And so let me use this introduction to kind of set up Leviticus. If you'll remember, um, last week we, um, we looked at the whole story of the Bible, and it begins in the Garden of Eden. And the garden, remember, represented the place where heaven and earth shared the same space. So heaven, right, is not a location out in the clouds. It is the place where God's immediate presence dwells. And so in the garden, God and man dwelled together, and it was great. Then, of course, man rebelled against God, and man was exiled from God's presence. And when God exiled man from, from his presence, it was an act of grace, right? We talked about this. How come? Because man was built to have a relationship with God. But the thing is, is that God is perfectly holy. And the holy presence of God is good, but it's dangerous, right? God's holiness is like the sun, right? It's warm. But if you get too close to it, it just consumes you. It'll, it'll destroy you. And so it's, it's good, but God's presence is, a, is dangerous for unholy people like us. But remember, we were built for God's presence. So we need heaven and earth to reunite. We need his presence. But how is this possible? How can we have it? Well, God tells Israel to build this tent of meeting, of meeting right? This, this tabernacle. And, and the tabernacle, and it's important that you understand this metaphor, is like God's royal palace where he dwells. This is where heaven and earth are coming together. And so the king of the universe moves into the neighborhood, into his palace. And this is great, because the thing is, is we really want to visit the king at his palace. But if we run into the palace, we will die. So last week, in the introduction sermon, we learned that when the tabernacle was constructed, God's presence, remember at Exodus 38, God's presence filled it. And Israel's most important person, Moses, could not go in. And I mean, I hate to break it to you, if Moses ain't going in, none of us are getting in, right? So in Leviticus, we, we read the very last verses of Exodus. Well, it's not in our passage today, but if you were to open up Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, the very next verse after the end of Exodus, it would say this. It would say, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now notice that it says from the tent of meeting. Now this is interesting because the very next book right after Leviticus is the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 starts like this. 
the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. All right, did you notice the difference there? Like, from the tent of meeting and now in. Like, Moses got in. Like, it worked. Like, whatever God told Moses to do in Leviticus totally worked. Leviticus worked. This is huge. So, like, what's the trick? How can we get into God's presence? Well, Leviticus has three solutions. Rituals, priesthood, and purity laws. This morning, I am going to speak about these rituals. No one take out your EpiPens. We're going to be fine. All right? Uh, So in chapter 1 through 7 of Leviticus, the first seven chapters, there are five different kinds of rituals or five different kinds of offerings. There are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, or sometimes called the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and then the last one is the guilt offering. This morning, we're going to study just one that we found in Leviticus chapter 3. It's this peace offering, this fellowship offering. Now, before we get into this text, let me say one more thing before we begin. Many of us, when we think of God's rituals or his laws, it feels burdensome. Like, ah, these rituals, these rules, they are suffocating me. But let me suggest to you that when an Israelite heard these same words... It gave them hope and joy. And let me explain. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, pagans had gods and they made sacrifices too. But their gods were really capricious, right? Sometimes they brought rain. Sometimes they brought fertility. Sometimes they didn't. And pagans never knew where they stood with their gods. They never knew if their sacrifices were enough. And this is a kind of uncertainty that will make people crazy. You know, it's like, it's like a child whose parents maybe suffer with a severe mental illness. Like maybe the mother is struggling with borderline or the father has like uh, episodes of manic depression. And what happens is that the child never knows how to relate to their parents, right? The, the child is constantly managing the wild mood swings of their parents, and they have no idea, like, what set them off. Like, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Like, what happened? Who knows? This is actually how pagans saw their gods. And dare I say it, sometimes that's how we are relating to God. Like, if something bad happens, what do we say? God, why did you do this? Like, what what did I do wrong? And so we're always attaching meaning to every good or bad event in our life, and we're attaching meaning to the whims of God. But if you do that, it will make you crazy. A good Israelite always knew how God felt about them. And because of God's law, you can know with certainty if your life is pleasing to God. And so this section of Leviticus is teaching Israel how to have a relationship with a holy God. It's teaching us how to live as his people. And so let me just say this. The New Testament is explicit that the Levitical law, all the stuff we're going to learn about, no longer applies to us. And nevertheless... What we're going to find are these principles that modern people will understand that give us the same benefits as it benefited the people in the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but I want to be able to rest in my relationship with Jesus. Rest. 
a capricious vision of God, a moody God is like exhausting. And so this is going to give us security and stability. So this morning, as we study this fellowship offering in Leviticus 3, we are going to discover three principles that are going to help us see the beauty and the joy of God's rituals and laws. So let's jump right into, how are we doing? All right. You're like, all right, I got my popcorn, Garcia. Make it work. Um, let's jump right into the first principle. So I come, um, I come, you guys know a little bit of mama's story. I come from an, an immigrant Mexican family. And uh, let me tell you what that means. It means that we grew up culturally but decidedly Catholic. And we weren't great Catholics. The Garcias weren't Catholics. We went to church when it was convenient. But growing up Catholic meant that all the rituals were extremely familiar and predictable to me. For all the rituals, I, I didn't know the gospel or I didn't love Jesus. By God's grace, when I was in high school, I heard the gospel. I believed. And it honestly, it set my heart on fire. I kind of became an outlier in my family, kind of a weirdo in my home. But I developed this really insatiable hunger to read the Bible and to learn. My college years were filled with reading books on theology and Christian living. My heart was engaged in my college years like never before. Uh, and in college, I ended up joining a church that basically looked at the Catholic church and did the exact opposite. Sadly, lamentably, lamentably, the church, my new church, defined itself opposite of what the Catholic church was as opposed to what the Bible teaches. And so in my new church, uh, emotional and spontaneous experiences with God were what were considered real and authentic, right? And, and so if you weren't getting goosebumps, then the spirit wasn't working in your life, right? That's where I'd come from. And I honestly, I bought into that vision of spirituality. But then I noticed something. I lost my fire. I got lazy. I mean, I wondered if I should go to church if I didn't like the music, honestly. Sometimes I'd skip church because I justified it by saying that if my heart is not engaged, then I should not go because then I'd be hypocritical, right? And I wanted to be authentic and spontaneous. And an internal emotional experience constituted the most important part of my spiritual life. Can I suggest to you that the Bible confronts both of the, the extremes that I just described to you in my story? And it's not because neither rituals nor sp spontaneity is important. It's rather because both of them are really important. Both are. And so the first principle is that the offerings of God are both ritualistic and spontaneous. And, and let me explain how I get there. So the first five sacrifices that you see in chapters 1 through 11 of Leviticus, they are not mandated. They're not, and they're not connected to the festivals. These are sacrifices that a person can give whenever he desires. There may be an instance in life in which a person spontaneously feels compelled to practice this ritual. So, for instance, maybe an Israelite privately broke one of the Ten Commandments. He's feeling overwhelmed by his guilt. He doesn't want to disappoint God, uh, so he offers a burnt offering. Uh, and then in celebration of the reconciliation and the certainty that he knows he has with God, he spontaneously makes a peace offering, a fellowship offering. 
And this spring allows his deep emotions to be expressed in real ways with God, right? Not just an internal, invisible experience, but he's bringing, that he's bringing expression to it. But here's the thing. Spontaneity is important. The heart must be engaged in worship, but it doesn't mean you can just come to God however you want. Y'all remember that story in Exodus 32 with Aaron and the golden calf? Y'all remember this? Like Moses is up on Mount Sinai talking to God. Aaron's down at the bottom. He's like, I'll hold down the floor while you're up there, big Mo, right? And then he gets all the people's gold. He molds it up into this golden statue in the, uh, in the shape of a baby cow. And he's like, hey, guys, here's my idea of what God is like. It's not that big of a deal what you think. What's important here is that our hearts are sincere. So let's take off our clothes and have a deep experience. That's literally what happened. Read it. Fact check me on this. And uh, it was spontaneous. It even had sacrifices. And God was so angry. Sanded down, made him eat that thing. God always tells us how to come to him. So in our text, the fellowship offering is spontaneous, but it's ritualistic. So in our text, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, God tells the people exactly how to sacrifice a cow. He tells you exactly what to do with the organs, who gets what. Verse five, verses 5 through 11, you'll see there in your Bibles, repeats the same instructions, the sign though it's with a sheep. And then in verses 12 through 16, does the instructions again, this time with a goat. So if you're rich, you use a cow. If you're poor, you use a goat. Uh, but everyone knew how to approach God. And here's what I want you to hear. Is this principle still governs us today. We want to embrace the best parts of meaningful spontaneity, but at the same time, this ritualistic aspect governs how God wants us to approach him. Sometimes we call this in our modern day, theologians will use this language of the regulative principle. That is to say that the Bible regulates how we worship him. Like we can't decide, God tells us. So for instance, like I like dramas. I do, I think there's a place for Christian plays. But we're just not gonna do Christian dramas here at church, right? Why? Because worship is not a talent show. This isn't a production. I'm not a celebrity pastor. I don't have a baby faux hawk in tight jeans, right? Like, we're just not going to do that. Because this isn't about us. It's about the Lord. He tells us how to come to him. We have communion. And we use bread and wine. We don't use pizza and coke. Why? Because the Bible regulates our worship. God tells us how to come to him. And this is like good news. Yes, it's ritualistic, but that doesn't mean that our hearts are not engaged. These rituals, these repetitions, like systematically confessing our sin every Sunday gives physical expression to our inward emotions. You see? So that's the first thing. There's more to say. i got to keep going. So the first principle brings together this aspect of ritual and spontaneity in our worship. Now, in our second principle, we have a vision of God who is both king and the beloved, right? The, the, the one whom, with whom we have intimacy. In, um, in 1961, 
uh, Life magazine published a picture, which has now become iconic. You've probably seen this before. It is of John, President John F. Kennedy sitting in the Oval Office while his baby son, John Jr., is playing at his desk. Y'all have seen this picture, right? Probably. Um, as the story goes, um, John F. Kennedy is, uh, JFK is having this important meeting with his cabinet members. All of a sudden, someone beats down the door, runs in, and runs into his desk, into the office. Now, at first, like, everyone is super indignant, right? Because no one enters the president's private meetings without an invitation. And certainly, you would not do so, like, so carelessly. But how does the president of the most powerful country in the free world react with this invasion? With joy. JFK was the president of the United States, but he's also a father. He held ultimate political power, but playing at his feet was a little boy who doesn't call him Mr. President, calls him Daddy. Now, I don't think your kids would have been allowed to run in. I don't think my kids would have been allowed to run in, but his kids were. You know why? Because he is their father. And what you have in John F. Kennedy is this union between president and father. Well, that union is just a, a, an appetizer, a, an echo of the union of king and beloved that's present in the description of God in these sacrifices. And let me explain. I mentioned earlier, the tabernacle is analogous to a royal palace where the creator and king of the universe resides. The tabernacle is ornate. It's filled with gold, unlike any other structure in all of Israel. It's fit for a king. It even has a throne room. We call it the Holy of Holies. And just as kings had servants in their palaces who wore special uniforms, so the king has special servants that wore special uniforms. We call them priests. It's interesting, beginning in the book of Exodus, there's this language, this literary form that emerges, and it takes on the shape of what theologians call a suzerain treaty. All right, don't let your eyes roll back in the back of your head. This is what a suzerain treaty is. It is a treaty or a covenant that was made in the ancient world between unequal parties, a superior and an inferior, right? And so what it is, is that a king will make promises to provide pr protection and benefits to his subjects, and the subjects will make promises and promise their loyalty and certain responsibilities in the kingdom of the king. And so this contract takes on this legalese, this legal language. That's what you find in Leviticus. And you're going to see even in chapter 3. It's like the fine print of a contract, of a, of a covenant. So you can notice in our text, look at your Bibles again, this if-then sequence. Verse 1 starts with if, then verse 5, then. And this if-then repeats. Verse 6, if. Verse 9, then. Verse 12, if. Verse 14, then. If, then. What is this legal language for? Here's what it's for. It's how you bring a tribute to a king. Right? You don't come to the king empty-handed. You come offering gifts, tributes. And here's the amazing part of this fellowship offering, the one which we're saying today. God makes a way for the relationship with the king and his subjects to be intimate. 
Look at verse 2, and then it does it in 8 and 13 again. That, that ritual is repeated. The worshiper comes to the altar with a perfectly healthy animal. He places his hands on the head of the animal. This is to symbolize like his sin is being conferred to this innocent animal in his place. And then the animal's throat is slit, and the priest sprinkles the blood on the altar. And the Lord accepts and communes with those who come into his holy presence through the death of an atoning sacrifice. But what happens next is like the best part. The worshiper, the guy bringing the animal, the priest, the servant in the palace, and the king, God, all three of them share a meal together. Like in that context, you guys, sharing a meal with the person is literally the most intimate thing you could do in the ancient world. It is so intimate to eat together because subjects don't eat buffets with their kings. That's not what they do. But Israelites do. Israelites have meals with God. And so the animal is cut up in three ways. The fat of the animal is the Lord's portion. Now look at me real quick. When you read that word fat, you should interpret it as the finest portion. The king gets the filet mignon. That's what that word fat means. Don't think of like the gristle. It is the finest portion goes to the king. The priest gets a portion, and of course the worshiper himself eats a portion of his own sacrifice. So he's bringing an offering, but he's actually benefiting from his own animal. And so the fellowship offering is a banquet where the king is enjoyed. His company is enjoyed in the most intimate way. And that vision of God is still present in our worship today. Often you guys will notice that when we pray, often we'll start our prayers how? We'll say, Father God. You know how we say that sometimes when we pray? Father God. It's a little bit, we pray like that, it's a little bit clumsy, but it's our way of trying to remember that the creator God of the universe communes with us as his children, Father God. He's God, but he's our Father. He invites us into his home. He dines with us. He is our beloved, and we are his. There is, listen, you guys, there's like no religion that relates to God on such intimate terms. Like, this is like mind-bending in the Old Testament. Mind-bending is still present in our worship today. Also worth noting is the sacrifice is not only for God's benefit, who gets the finest portion, but the two other parties benefit as well. So first, the palace, the palace servants, the priests. It's kind of funny to say this, but you guys, like, the Levitical priests didn't pull a paycheck and they don't have land. Like all the tribes get land except for the Levites. So they don't have their own land to farm. So the priests actually need the, the sacrificial system to survive. Like that's the only way they would eat, as if the other tribes brought sacrifices. Now, uh, this, that practice is present. Your pastors, guys like me, Jason, uh, we still benefit. We're paid. From a portion of all of our offering, right? We're, Jason and I are not peddling vitamins or selling Tupperware on the side, right? We don't have a side hustle, right? So all of our offering, a portion of that pays for us, right? Um, and then you, you're benefiting from your own sacrifice. 
Like, it's good for you to give sacrifice to the Lord, but you are benefiting. For instance, we're all benefiting from this building. There's air conditioning. There's child care. There's, you know, picnics where we're all delighting and enjoying. And so the maintenance of the people of God comes from our collective offerings. And because of our offerings, the church community is hospitable, and it's a hospitable place to worship the Lord. So we are all benefiting from our sacrifice. It's not all burned up, you see. Are y'all, are y'all following this? Now listen to how the Apostle Paul, because this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, this is what he writes. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Like, you see him using that language? Calling it an offering. All right. Moving a little bit fast here. One more principle. We examined how our, our offering is ritualistic and spontaneous. And then we examined how the king is also the beloved in this moment of sacrifice and worship. Finally, we're going to see how the offerer and the offering are brought together. So with each of the five offerings uh, that we see... Um, in Leviticus 1 through 7, the person is bringing something of worth, right? Uh, in the case of the fellowship offering, which is our passage this morning, a person brings in an animal. If you were to read Leviticus chapter 2, the chapter before, uh, you would see the grain offering, and that's where they're bringing their finest flour and oil and spices, and they're burning that up on the, oil, on the altar. But here's the deal. In every case, the worshiper comes to the Lord and he recognizes that it costs him something, right? There is no faith without a personal cost. No cheap grace, you see. And here's the experience. When a person brings his offering to the Lord, he is implicitly declaring this as he comes. Lord, everything I have is because of you. Everything I have belongs to you. I am going to give back to you, Lord, a portion of what I have received by grace. But listen, this is what I want you to hear. In that moment, in that precise moment of the offering, the worshiper is not only saying that what I have belongs to the Lord, what he is really saying is, Lord, I belong to you. Not only do you own my stuff, you own me. I belong to you, Lord. And you know what this means? When we worship properly, what we are saying is that both the offering and the offerer belongs to the Lord. We are His. We are His. And so true worship helps us to understand who we are. And that's we're His. That was like crystal clear in the New Testament. This principle was not just a Leviticus thing. This, it came all the way through. We see it nowhere more clear than in Jesus himself. When John the Baptist first lays eyes on Jesus, what does he say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus in himself is the offerer 
and the offering. Ephesians 5.2, the Apostle Paul, exhorting people to walk in love with God and to live lives of love. He says, also walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is what we're doing. Every time we make an offering, I give you what I have, but what I'm doing, Lord, is I give you me. I give you me. Offer, offer together. 30-day challenge. When you wake up every morning and when you lie in bed at night, every 30 days, may your first words be, all I have is yours, all I am is yours. All I have is yours, all I am is yours, precious Savior. Try it. Begin and end every day. It will work and work on your soul. All right, let me, this has been long, sorry, thank you. Thank you, this is, this is a lot, right? Leviticus 3. Uh, let me just conclude with one final thought about this text. You and I were built for God's presence. But because of our sin, God's good presence has turned dangerous to us. God has made a way for us to be in his presence. And these rituals and these practices give form to principles that are surprisingly refreshing for modern 21st century people living in Denver. Our worship is both ritualistic and spontaneous. Our God is both king and the beloved. And we are both the offerers and part of the offering. And with these surprising ironies that you see in Leviticus, specifically this fellowship offering, we get to see that God is not capricious. Like we can have certainty in our relationship with God. In fact, the rest that our souls are looking for we can have it because we know where we stand with God, even on our bad days, even when we're not feeling it. We know where we stand with him. When an Israelite wanted to make a fellowship offering to the Lord, he dared not show up empty-handed. He knew exactly what to bring and how to offer it. The finest part of the animal and its blood was placed on the altar. Would you just look at these, the last two verses? Of chapter 3. Verse 16 says, And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat, the finest portion, is the Lord's. And it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. All right. Hang on to those words. And I want you to think about Jesus. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the Passover meal, he's in the upper room with his, with his brothers. He's enjoying the food, that Seder meal. Where did that food come from? Well, the theologians will tell you that Jesus was enjoying the meal from their fellowship offering that they spontaneously made. The fellowship the peace offering was the context of that Passover meal in the upper room. But at that meal, Jesus does something really different, right? He takes the bread and the wine, and he calls it something, right? He, he takes the bread, 
And he says, this is the new fat, the new finest portion. It's my body. And then he takes the cup, the wine, and he calls it something. He says, this is my blood. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the fat. I'm the finest portion. This is my blood that must be offered up to the Lord. I am the once and for all finest sacrifice that can be achieved and given and offered to the Lord. His sacrifice, him, his body and his blood is how we have fellowship, how peace is achieved with a holy God. In Christ, the presence of God is no longer dangerous. It's, it's hospitable. Now, now, you guys, and listen, when you come to God, don't you dare come with anything in your hands. You come empty-handed. You don't cling to anything, only his works. Him, humbly, broken, desperate for him alone. We cling to Jesus, him alone, our once and forever perfect sacrifice. That's Leviticus 3. May you know your Savior deeply. Let's pray. Lord, oh, I pray that these mundane words and these hard words, the part of the Bible that we usually skip over, may you enchant our hearts with new truth, goodness, and beauty. Oh, Lord, as we study the writings of Moses this semester, oh, Lord, may we be all about you and your son. We give to you our stuff, but we give to you our, ourselves. By faith, may your spirit deepen this in us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you please stand and let's respond to the Lord with one final song.